Paul Mary Peterson and you're looking at Tracy. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And a good morning. You are tuned in to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane. Now I'm on uh, mic two today. <laughs> Alright. Yes, good morning, listeners. Um, we have a pretty packed program today. Um, it's a bit. Um, but before I guess I announce what we have coming up on that program, um, I'd just like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR today. Um, it's being broadcast to you from the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation. Um, like to pay our respect to elders past and present and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Indeed. Okay, so there's actually been quite a lot um, happening in terms of um, politics um, over the past week. Um, in fact, a refugee protester was arrested on Monday um, for holding up a sign outside Q&A um, in Sydney. Um, and there's no, there doesn't seem to be any kind of real explanation for why she was arrested other than the fact that she was holding up a sign, a pro-refugee um, rights sign. Um, the historical um, Ireland referendum vote, I think, happened, mm. um, which, quite, um, which was quite significant. So women have, you know, won the right to um, safe abortions as a result of this referendum. And, yeah, I think that's, um, that's quite a lot um, happening there um, in the par- over the past week. Yeah. Um, another thing that happened in the past week is that the uh, the CFMEU, uh, which I'm a member of the construction division, the CFMEU uh, voted to shut down the Victorian ALP conference early, uh, which meant that a number of progressive motions put up by um, lefties in the ALP did not end up getting debated, and amongst those motions was uh, one calling on Bill Shorten to close Manus and Nauru within 90 days if elected and um, bring the any remaining refugees and asylum seekers and children at those camps to Australia. Um, I went to a... It just so happened that we had a branch meeting on... Um, uh, Wednesday night of the CFMEU and I went along there and basically made it really clear that I thought it was really unprincipled what the union's doing, that this is not the first time that they've actually, um, you know, on on the question of refugees in particular, because this, this closing a conference early didn't just affect the refugees motion, but that was one of the big ones. Um, but, yeah, on, on the question of refugees in particular... The CFMEU's position over the last couple of years has been really poor, and uh, yeah, I've made it 
clear that I, I don't think it's acceptable at all. And the response that I got was basically um, this this weird ALP right kind of position that the best thing you can do for refugees actually is vote for that guy who's saying stop the boats, Bill Shorten, because only a Shorten government that's elected on a platform of stopping the boats is going to shut down the camps. Like, it was this really sort of completely contradictory and ridiculous argument. Mm. And, um, yeah, as a CFMEU construction member, um, it's it's extremely concerning and demoralising, disappointing for me that the CFMEU, which for so long has been a progressive voice, not just on industrial issues but on broader social issues, the CFMEU could always be relied upon to to stick up and and to and to take the right position and and support those groups that are being marginalised and attacked by the state. So for the CFMEU to abandon refugees like they have been, I think is completely unacceptable. And this idea that that, that the union leadership puts forward that you, you can't get elected in Australia unless you support torturing refugees. A, it's not true. There's polls that have shown a majority of ALP voters don't want these evil camps to be open. Um, a majority of voters more generally um, don't actually feel like that's a serious issue and, and that they wouldn't vote for a party based on them not wanting to torture refugees. And even if it was the case that the only way to get elected in this country was to commit to running torture camps for refugees, even if that was the case, you can't support that. It's not it's mm. not principled. Well, I think, yeah, I, I think what it, what it kind of shows is, I, well, one of the things is that the Liberal Party, um, you know, the, the Labor Party is so, you know, basically not willing to stand up for any, anything really, because there's this whole thing about, um, that the Liberals are trying to, you know, any kind of motion that would have passed, um, coming out of that state conference would have been, you know, in defiance of basically what the federal ALP um, is putting forward as a position. And then you would have, you know, people like Peter Dutton who would be seizing on that as like, look, going up to the media and saying, look, there's a, this is a divi- example of a divided Labor Party because they're divided on this question of... Yeah, Labor is the- weak on refugees, blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, I think probably would um, people would um, would have a lot more respect for the Labor Party if they could just ditch caving into what the Liberals um, say and just say, we fully stand with refugees and we support bring them here. Mm. Um, in fact, one of the one of the, I guess, the issues, I guess, with the refugee movement, and I was discussing this with my housemate um, last night, is that people are so demoralised because, um, because of how there just doesn't seem to be a way out of um, pushing this forward. And, you know, one of the main issues is the fact that the ALP is such a block on this. If the ALP just came down, even with just a soft, even if they came up with something soft, like even if they say came up with like supported, they still support boat turnbacks, but they supported closing down the camps, um, and bring the refugees here, that would still be, they would, st- that would still be enough, that would still galvanize people enough that would think we can actually win the campaign and actually even push the Labor Party even further to get them to oppose boat turnbacks, which I still think is a, a compromise that we shouldn't take. Oh, absolutely not. Um, but it's... And so it, it's... it's um, And I guess some other things that happened at the ALP State Conference, um, 
is it's quite clear that the this is sort of almost take change the topic of slightly, but mm, right. um the ALP state conference actually passed um, you know, some motions related to the fact that if Labor gets elect, re, well, re-elected, that they would pass industrial manslaughter laws, mm. um, and that they'll pass laws related to wage theft. I think that's, and also, also even progressive is what's also progressive is they also pass motions um, supporting um, legislation and decriminalisation of um, sex work. Although I think sex work is already decriminalised in 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 Melbourne, but they kind of basically. Um, imp- basically implemented laws that would um, be pro-sex worker rights. So mm. um, those are all positive things. However, I well, guess... It was uh, just on the um, wage theft. Uh, John Setsko and Sean Reardon actually spoke against that at our branch meeting, and they said the problem with um, criminalising wage theft and putting people in jail for this is that um, people will no longer turn to their union to make sure they're getting paid right at mm. their job they'll go straight to the state, they'll go straight to the courts mm. and try and take their boss to court. Um, and he also said it's it's a two-way street. Like, if you end up, you know, working a couple of hours extra or whatever and you end up getting paid a bit more, those workers, it's a double-edged sword that would actually be used against workers. It, uh, it would be used in situations where the union calls for strike pay to be paid. Um, so... Yeah, Setkin Reardon was saying, mm. we don't actually support this whole criminalisation thing. Definitely, f- there should be hefty fines for bosses that systematically rip off their workers, mm. but this thing of introducing yeah. a criminal thing in jail. Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting perspective, obviously, but I guess it's because of the, this, the, the whole wage theft laws come in the context of, you know, hospitality workers being consistently ripped off mm. um and one of the issues i guess one of the issues and this shows kind of the weakness still of the of hospitality workers is unlike the cfmu hospitality workers still don't even with the founding of the hospo voice union they still don't have a really strong union that has yeah. democratic kind of a lot of um weight industrial weight basically yeah, and yeah. so a lot of cases around hospitality workers have actually more or less been appealing to the Fair Work Commission. Yeah, yeah, cool. um, They've all been mm. completely legalistic. So for hospitality workers, this is actually a welcome change because a lot of their struggles and a lot of their systematic ripping off has actually been handled by these legalistic bodies. But you couldn't say the same for construction workers because these legalistic bodies have not been actually their friends. Yeah, and, and I mean, for construction sites... The places where there are union EBAs is where it's a big site, not little tiny jobs. Like I work at a little residential construction firm. There's me and another carpenter. That's it, typically at our job site. So it's it's kind of hard to... Unionising a work site is more of a phenomenon for bigger things. It's, it's difficult to unionise little work sites that have a couple of people. But yeah, the those industrial manslaughter laws... Assuming that the Andrews government is re-elected and implements them, that will be a important step yeah. forward. But I guess. I guess one criticism I can. Okay, so this is all welcome developments, I guess, for the state Labor. But the one issue I do find is the fact that they're already in power. Like, yeah, in, why don't they just do it now? Yeah, like they could implement it now. But of course, what it says to me is it's sort of like they're using it as a, you know, as a kind of wedge to basically galvanise people to get them elected. Mm. Um, at the same time, they don't want to implement it just in case they upset oh, yeah, certain, be a big... right, certain right-wing forces, which yeah. then, 
impacts on their chances of getting elected. <laughs> so, um, and it was actually quite funny. Um, actually, in the Herald Sun recently, there was um, because all the wage theft in um and exploitation of hospitality workers has been all the rage recently. Um, there was a very funny front cover article of I think it was on over the weekend of this poor. Um, hospitality boss complaining about how he feels so oppressed and so he's you know he feel he feels so attacked by all these people you know for saying that just because oh, he can't systematically steal from all of his workers yeah yeah what a like, poor dude like, well the, the so argument is that oh yes my business is struggling and kind of thing and so yeah they, yeah so hell son thought it thought it was fit to give him a big you know front page article. I mean, when did they get to put a front page of a of an actual hospital a young hospitality worker who's been sister who has who has their wages systematically stolen from them, mm. and how hard it is them to put food on the table? How hard is it it is for them to pay rent because mm. their boss is systematically stealing their wages and mm. or worse under paying them under award rates. And this idea that a, that bosses should be able to run a business based on paying your workers below the legal minimum wage, like, that's actually not... <laughs> like, other human beings are not there to subsidise your small business vision. Like, that's the, the... If you can't pay your workers <laughs> the legal minimum, you shouldn't be in business. Like, it's just... You're, you're an unsuccessful... You're a failed business person... If your business model relies upon systematically ripping off your workers. Okay, mm. so I guess in a women in a minute we're going to be playing an uh, interview by um, Dick Nichols, who's a correspondent from Green Left Weekly. Yes. Uh, should we play? That? Now, I might just play a quick uh, announcement before we before we kick that off. But yeah, we've got Dick Nichols coming up. He's going to be talking about Catalonia. On which he's he's living in Spain and he's he's got some stuff to say. So, all right, stick around. You're on Greenleaf Radio. Thanks okay. for talking to us again, Dick, and welcome back to 3CR. My pleasure, Lali. Yep. Now things are moving at a rate of knots in uh, Catalan and Spain as a whole. So, Tora, uh, what's his name? Quim. Is that how you pronounce Kim it? Kim Tora. Kim Tora has been mm. elected. Um, as the, pri- the Prime Minister instead of uh, Puigdemont in uh, Catalan. Is that right? Give us, give us a full story on that one. Well, what's, what happened was that the, after they won the December 21 elections, the pro-independence forces in Catalonia uh, insisted on sh- wanting to act on the basis of those elections as the democratically expressed will of the majority in Catalonia. Of course. And they wanted to have Puigdemont, uh, who's in exile in Belgium, or in, in Germany now, uh, as as the Premier. It's the equivalent would be Premier, but since there was the independence vote here, everybody's calling him President. So oh, okay. I'll say, pre- I'll <laughs> say President. Yep. Yeah, I'll say President from yep. now on. That's right. So then what happened was the, the Spanish government said, no, we're not accepting Puigdemont. Yep. Um, and they then the pro-independence forces put up alternatives to Puigdemont. Um, one of these was in jail, and one of them was put back in jail so that he couldn't become um, the president. Mm. And finally, finally, having exposed the nature of you know, this, the Spanish state's refusal to accept the decision uh, of the December 21 election, 
uh, they put up Torah. So Torah was sort of plan D, number four. Uh, by the, the same. Hang on. Uh, Torah was put up by the Spanish government or the Catalonian. Uh, no, no, by the pro independence forces. Okay, that's what I thought. So, what, yeah. the Spanish, what the Spanish government said is we are not going to have anybody uh, in any position of authority in Catalonia, in the Catalan government, yep. uh, <clears throat> who is being charged or is liable to be charged because oh. the other people are in jail or in exile, but they have actually not yet been charged with anything. Mm. The Spanish judicial system, the Supreme Court, is preparing a macro trial, a sort of you know big show trial of probably up to 20 Catalan independent figures, and that'll start probably in, in June or July. But that's not actually started yet. So these people are being held in jail uh, on suspicion that they would be that, that they would flee, or on suspicion that they would reoffend. Um, this is the Spanish justice system. I just should say this for listeners. I mean, they can, you can hold people for four years in jail without charging them with anything. Mm. So this dates back Wait. to the sort of, you know, struggle against the ETA, yeah. ETA military terrorist operation in the Basque country. Mm. Okay, so mm. now uh, Torah has been declared as the president, I suppose, as you put it. Um, yeah. Now, this, he is... From the right wing, though, isn't he, of this independence well, movement? Well, he's he's a conservative Catholic uh, Catalan nationalist, uh, as many many people in uh, PDCAT, which is the Catalans, you know, the former ruling party here, yep. used to be called Convergence. Um, yes, but the, what happens is he he has written a whole lot of things in the past which uh, were very Catalanist and described all the problems of Catalonia in terms of the Spanish as a sort of great homogenous block, not the Spanish establishment or the Spanish ruling elites, but just the Spanish. This was easy to interpret, and of course the, their enemies have interpreted it as, uh, as racist or as xenophobic, but he's not racist or xenophobic. Um, what he what he was, or what he is in his writings, and of course him as a president is a completely different thing from him as a conservative uh, Catalan nationalist. Yeah, but they're two different things. That's um, they, the, the the socialists, for example, the socialist party in Spain has gone on a kind of rampage against Torra, calling him a Nazi, and but this is this is all going to fall apart because it doesn't bear up. Um, and there's an art, I wrote an article on all of this for links, which goes into the, all the uh, chapter and verse. So p- if people want to really get their heads around it, they can read that. Farah is a conservative uh, Catalan nationalist who has become president in a situation where conservatism, conservative Catalan nationalism, won't operate, can't operate. If he tried to operate with the old uh, conservative line, it just he wouldn't last. Mm. Uh, because the whole movement here is much more to the left, much more progressive, Republican, etc., etc. So he's put himself in a very difficult position because he, he can't rule the way he would like to um, as a Catalan nationalist and a conservative, but he's actually of no great advantage to the Spanish government either, is he? No, and, and it's questionable whether he would want to rule in the way that his writings might suggest. I mean, his... His options are very much set by the fact that he's part of, he's the leader of a coalition with the Republican left of Catalonia. Mm. 
which is the second party, which is a sort of centre-left party, and the fact that he comes into this job uh, in the wake of, and as a substitute for, as he says himself, I am not the legitimate president. The legitimate president here is Puigdemont. Mm. And, of course, politics of Puigdemont was always more was progressive. And, I mean, the, one of the first things they're going to do is re-adopt in the Catalan parliament all the... So I think it's 16 pieces of progressive legislation okay. which were blocked by the Spanish Constitutional Court. These pieces of legislation cover a good. They cover things like some decisive action on climate change, you know, maybe probably not enough, but at least from the Spanish state point of view, much more progressive than they could wear. Um, uh, guaranteed minimum income. Mm. Uh, legislation against uh, uh, um, against discrimination against women, gays, uh, intersex people, a whole whack of stuff, which is the most progressive in the European scene, which mm. he's going to up again. And this is the basis on which the independence movement has been built. I mean, the independence movement has become a near majority or a majority in the country um, on the basis of First, identification with Catalan nationalism, obviously, and the rights of the Catalan nation to self-determination. That's the, obviously the main sentiment. But also the idea that we could have a much better, fairer, more democratic society if we were independent. And that, that non-nationalist independence sentiment yeah. is sort of key here. It's yeah. key, and it's, it's, it's much more to the left than old Catalan uh, nationalism. Okay, so how is the Spanish government now going to face this? It's, it's, it's a real, I don't know, what do you call that, a paradox, where you've got this conservative guy who's got to implement extremely progressive uh, platform. How is that going to work for him and for the Spanish government? Because if he doesn't, he's going to cop it from the people of Catalonia, isn't he? I mean, he's already copying it from certain elements in the left who said he should never, not the left, in the nationalist movement, the left of the nationalist movement, who said he should never have capitulated, in inverted commas, to pressures from the Spanish government. Like, for example, the People's Unity List uh, abstained, never voted for him as the People's Unity List, which is the left nationalist uh, anti-capitalist force, uh, who have four members of parliament. They abstained on his... Um, being president, yeah. because they said the only legitimate president is Puigdemont. Yeah. We're not voting for anybody else. Yeah, so cup abstained. Yeah. And so now that they formed a government, it is saying this is just another regional Spanish government way of thinking is yeah, a bit dogma, a bit doctrinaire and dogmatic because it entirely depends on what this government does in mm -hmm. practice, whether you can say that. And what... Uh, Tora has said and said in his uh, investiture speech was that we have a three-point plan. That's First right. point is to, is to have a, a constituent process in Catalonia. The second point is to build the council, to have a council for a republic, which is, like I say, we'll have like a double-headed government. There'll be the government in exile, led by Puigdemont and the people in, and the ministers in exile in Brussels, um, and will form the Council of the Republic, which will be like the representative of the Catalan Republic voted for on the October 1st referendum last year. Mm. Uh, that will be the one that throws up the agenda to the government 
actually operating in 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 Catalonia itself, in, in Totora and his people. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is they're going to do the, a constituent process in Catalonia. So there will be now be a big a process of what forming a constitution, discussing, developing a constitution for the Catalan Republic. What's the Spanish state going to do that? Do there? Stop mm. closed down where people are discussing these things. Um, that's a that's a real problem for them. Um, and the third thing is that they're going to implement, as I've just mentioned, uh, all this accumulated legislation, which is progressive in, from the point of view of the Spanish state, far too progressive. Um, and so conflict is guaranteed. So this is segue uh, into what's happening now, really, as you mentioned before, before we started the interview, that there's a crisis basically in, in, in Spain as a whole because of this Catalan movement. Well, the Catalan crisis is the Spanish crisis. Yes. Um, and Spanish, that's, that's what it is. I mean, if people talk about Catalonia, it's, it, there's the interaction between what is happening in the politics of the Spanish state and what is happening here. These are, it's all the, the same thing. Mm. I mean, we now have a censure, a censure motion brought by the Socialist Party in the, in the Congress, in the Spanish Congress, against the Mariano Rajoy uh, PP government, that's the Popular Party, People's Party government, uh, because the courts in Spain have brought down the final decision in a corruption case, a huge corruption case, which has found literally, and I quote, uh, that the PP is a has been a conspiracy to commit uh, fraud on the public purse. Yeah, you know, that's like a part, of the, and and the Socialist Party really had no choice but to bring a censure motion against this government. But to, for this censure motion to succeed, it has to have the support of the two Catalan nationalist parties or in pro-independence party in the Spanish Parliament plus the Basque pro-independence or right-wing pro-independence, not pro-independence, the Basque nationalist party yep. uh, in the Spanish Parliament, um, and. This then becomes, uh, that's what's going on at the moment. Now, of course, the Spanish Socialist Party has been probably more uh, Spanish patriotic and anti-Torra than the PP itself in the last uh, two weeks. But now that they need the support of the um, Spanish, uh, of the Catalan parties, uh, the PSOE, the, the socialists at the level of the Spanish state, um, though they say we're not doing any negotiations, we just think that you should vote for this and no confidence motion, um, they actually have to lower the tone a bit. So this, uh, what you've got is the corruption in the, which is the, the corruption which the PP embodies and runs on, has finally caught up with them. Mm. Uh, the Socialist Party cannot just sit there and say, oh, yeah, that's interesting, but we can't move a resolution against this or a no-confidence motion against this because that would make life easier for the, uh, the Catalan independence forces. They can't do that because Podemos has been pressing them for a year now. You bring a no-confidence motion against Rajoy. Bring a no-confidence motion. We'll vote for it. Um, so they finally had to do that because if they hadn't done that, then they would have been revealed to be complicit, not just in anti-Catalanism, not just in smashing the you know, Catalan independence movement, yeah. but complicit in the actual corruption of the PP itself. Absolutely. So they've yeah. had, they've had to act. So what this has done is open up uh, politics in the Spanish state as a whole mm. and give a, a, a bit more space 
for the Catalan independence forces to 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 move, uh, even though we can't have any illusions at all that, that a socialist party government is going to have anything like a, a decent line on what should happen in relations between the Spanish state and Catalonia. There's going to be quite a battle in the next few days, and I guess we'll have a talk again soon about how, what it's going to be like in, the, in one week even. Well... It'll be either next by Friday night, Australian time, you will either have a new government in Spain or you will have to understand, well, why is it that this most corrupt government in Europe is still in, in, on, in the saddle? If, it, if this government falls, the, the, the reason will be is because the hate, hatred of or the need to act against corruption and to be seen to act against corruption uh, was stronger than uh, the opposition to the Catalan, having the support of the Catalans in that. Mm. And if the, the Rajoy survives, the reason will be uh, it's better to have any sort of Spanish government, no matter how corrupt, as long as you don't have to rely on Catalan support to uh, overthrow it. Wow, it, it's just amazing, isn't it? We just have to wait and see what the fallout's going to be from all this. Yeah, well, the, the, um, the, the old saying of Spanish centralism, Spanish chauvinism, really, mm. is best, was better read than broken. Better read than broken up, was it some an old Spanish general said that. You know, wow. It would be better if we had communist Spain, yes. as long as it's, it's a unified Spain. This has really become, it's better to have a co- completely corrupt Spain than a Spain which, you know, loses Catalonia. So... And there's a wing of the Socialist Party, the most Spanish centralist wing, which is already fighting against this. They've already come out and said uh, much more worrying is loss of Catalonia. That's much more worrying than, you know, corruption that is like a, a cancer that occupies the whole of the, uh, the, whole, of the, uh, the whole of the Spanish state. Uh, and what they're doing is they're trying to provoke the Catalan nationalist parties not to support their own party's no-confidence motion. Mm. Because for them, it would be better for Rajoy to be in government. Their position in Catalonia is that the PSOE shouldn't, should have its own party in Catalonia, a Spanish centralist party. At mm. the moment, what you have is the Catalan, uh, the Party of Socialists of Catalonia, which is like supposedly an independent sister organisation of the PSOE, of the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, mm-hmm. uh, and which works out and operates to, uh, you know, work out joint positions. That's how it's supposed to work to operate. But basically, the line of the, these Catalan socialists is is more and more determined, I would say, 99% determined by the PSOE. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is all very, you know, this is all part of the enormous complication of, uh, com- of politics in the Spanish state. Uh, but basically, this confidence motion is really about: is it is the corruption in the Spanish state a bigger issue than the threat of Catalan independence? Yes, quite a choice. Yes. It's all no. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how corrupt Mariano is, or where and the PP is. Uh, I, we are not going to throw them out if that means we have to have depend on the support of the Catalans. Mm. Or is the corruption in the Spanish state so great that yes, we'll even support, we'll even take through gritted teeth 
the support of the Catalan parties in order to throw him out. Yeah. So that's basically what's going to happen in the next couple of days. Okay, we'll wait and see, and we'll talk again soon just to catch up with what's happening. It's moving so fast. Mm. All right, Dick, thank you so much. We'll catch up again soon. Thanks very much, Lolly. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, Captain Snooze up in the building. Yeah, so just before that little um, announcement from Rod Quantock, of course, we had... Uh, Lali Chalia, our regular co-host here at Greenleaf Radio, speaking uh, via the interwebs with Dick Nichols, who's based in Barcelona, about uh, yeah the Catalonian independence struggle and the dastardly and disgraceful way that the Spanish state and the Spanish right wing are responding to that. So uh, yeah, that's uh, it's really good actually to have. Dick over there in Spain and able to give us these detailed reports about that. Mm. All right, it is uh, 7.35. What's, what's, uh, what's new in the world of left-wing and environmental yeah. news? I kind of want to follow up on, um, on what's on that um, hot island sort of historical um, abortion vote. Yeah, cool. um, So this is an article I'm going to do you reading basically about from um, from the latest Green Left Weekly um, that you know Ireland's um, historical abortion vote has you know fueled calls for reform in the Ireland's north. Um, Sinn Fein President Mary Lou Macdonald saying it was time for the six countries to adopt the same legislation, and one of the one of the one of the kind of issues is um, the six counties that make up the Northern Ireland starlet are still controlled by Britain. Um, Although Britain and British laws governing abortion don't actually apply, and so abortions actually remain illegal in the north. Um, so I think it's um, so basically this sort of whole, you know, um, this whole the overwhelming sixty six point four percent who voted in favour of repelling um, the law, um, paving the way for the legislation of abortion in Ireland, has you know basically kind of triggered calls that you know. We need to have this kind of thing in North Ireland as well, and you know it can't just be you know these kind of, Ireland needs to be united on this kind of issue. <clears throat> and um, but of course, um, there's also other kind of political issues kind of happening in North Ireland as a result. I mean, there's the whole Democratic Unionist Party who are playing who are you know strongly opposed changes to abortion laws in North Ireland. Um, Although the Northern Ireland-based Alliance for Choice welcomed the resu- result with um, campaigner Daniel, Daniela Roberts saying, we are proud to have played a small part in solidarity campaigning with our friends in Ireland and we'll continue with that solidarity until it is no longer needed. Um, and, and Health Minister Sa- um, Simon Harris said the parent... Um, people of Ireland have shown that they want to live in a country that treats women with compassion. Under the Eighth Amendment, women in crisis pregnancy have been told to take the plane, take the boat, tell, today we tell them to take our hand. And of course the vote was welcomed as a major kind of advance, um, in, in, in women's rights in a country where the dominant Catholic Church played a key role in pushing and promoting the 1983 constitutional amendment that saw the right of an unborn child given equal status to the rights of a mother. Um, and so following on from that historical vote, the government will then work on draft legislation that will allow for abortion without restrictions up to 12 weeks and up to 23 weeks in some circumstances, including rape and health reasons, and it is promised to pass the legislation by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really positive development coming out of uh, Ireland, and 
in some ways uh, similar to the um, marriage equality vote here because I think those those sort of um, some of the, the Catholic ideas or the religious sort of ideas that underpin these ban on abortion held a lot of sway I think from what I understand in Ireland so it's a really momentous kind of shifting of public attitudes which is in some way probably broadly a bit similar to the way that the marriage equality vote here symbolised a a big shift in social attitudes away from homophobia and more towards just accepting people for who they are so yeah good to see women having more control over their own bodies yeah so this is another just another quick article I want to have a bit of a discussion about and it's um probably a bit we won't be able to go through everything in this article but it's just about this whole question about um the rise of surveillance um capitalism in the age of facebook um so probably listeners probably heard about the cambridge analytical scandal um which you know basically um, pointed out that Facebook has basically been, you know, harvesting your um, a lot of your personal data. Um, but I guess one of the, the issues that um, Tom Walker raises here in this article is that the problem actually kind of goes, this kind of problem actually goes beyond Facebook. It's actually not, it's not just actually Facebook that is, you know, collecting your your data is, but it's really actually a lot of major technology companies are actually participating in this. And you know, the biggest biggest um, technology firms responsible for an ever growing share of the world's billionaires, you know, follow this kind of mantra that you know data is the new oil. And you know, the apps, the apps, and the kind of websites you use every day are the extraction method. They're not monetize, um They're not really mon- necessarily. I mean, there's all these kind of fears that you know, governments will use the fact that these companies will mo- are monitoring your data but will actually use it against you in sort of like a political way for like, you know, state-style kind of social control. But actually, I think mm. that the actual truth is... I love the Dark Mirror episode where your social credit rating is influences everything you do. Yeah. Well, what they actually do what they're actually doing is they're using that data to profit basically. It's yeah. it's for, it's for, it's for, it's for your, it's to profit off you as a consumer. Mm. Like the reason why Facebook and Twitter collects all this information about, you know, your likes and your habits is so they can it's so they have deals with all these corporations and companies to actually show you, you know, the correct advertising materials yeah. that you would super, be Super super targeted marketing. Yeah. To the point where it's like starting to cross over into like psychological profiling of you so they can like <laughs> virtually brainwash you into blank. Yeah. And if you and if you watch um and if you watch um if you use a, a program like Netflix, although you're already paying for it, you're not really paying any extra when it shows you um the similar content you might like based on what you watch, but you know, it's a way of keeping you subscribed to the system by, you know, showing you content that you would probably possibly enjoy and you'll keep consuming it. <laughs> Um, and so, and, you know, they even quote, um, this, uh, computer security expert in this article, um, Bruce Snyder, who writes that, you know, the smartphone is probably the most in- intimate kind of surveillance, um, device ever invented. You know, it tracks our location continuously, you know, that we, we use those location tracker things for like the purpose of, you know, our GPS, etc. Um, and, and so it knows where we live, where we work, and where we spend our time. And it's, of course, the first and last thing we check in a day. So it knows when we wake up and when we go to sleep. You know, we all have one, so it knows who we sleep with. So it's like it's the, it's it's all of all this kind of thing about you know um, it's all sneaked in kind of into our kind of technology. And I think really the other kind of issue um, that 
Tom Walker kind of raises in this article is, I mean, some people could get paranoid and say, well, I'm just going to opt out of all technology, but ultimately that individual choice isn't really going to have an impact on anything really. Mm. In fact, one of the issues is just opting out of these kind of technologies um, like Facebook, Twitter, or even opting out of using a smartphone entirely the way the world is going, it just makes your life more inconvenient and you're not really having, there's no real political impact being kind of felt there. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it doesn't, um, it doesn't, um, prevent us from, you know, raising these critical questions about how we can actually decommodify these kind of systems. Um, and ha- and, you know, um, we need to, one of the things that, um, Tom Walker kind of raises in this article is that, you know, collectively we need to demand regulation. Um, the European Union's new general data protection regulations are a good start. And just as importantly, we have to build attorneys that explicitly reject the data extraction model. And of course, there's nothing really, he argues here, there's nothing inherent in about social media that requires it to plunder our personal data other than the company's surveillance capitalist business models. Mm. And of course, open source, non-profit tools and the original spirit in the web could let us communicate freely and easily and it could give us the positive aspects of social media without taking the mercenary spies um, along for the ride. And, of course, you know, um, basically kind of the article kind of ends that, you know, the current spotlight on Facebook will probably soon fade, but every data scandal, and there will be many more to come, increases the um, relevance and the urgency of technological alternatives that take let us take back our online lives from the corporations. Yeah, cool. Yeah, my partner's from Germany, and I reckon in Germany there's almost like a, a heightened alertness about being surveilled uh, based on the, the history in that country where you had the, the East German Stasi, the, the Stalinist secret police who bloody monitored and, and like, um, I'm trying to find a word that doesn't involve swearing, uh, the secret police not only monitored people but conducted basically psychological, low-level psychological warfare and um, played horrible games against people. So a lot of everyday Germans are really kind of pretty like aware about not being surveilled. A lot of um, Germans won't have Facebook, mm. but instead they have WhatsApp. <laughs> and guess who owns WhatsApp. Facebook? Facebook. <laughs> so, yeah. I think, um, yeah, the idea that you can somehow sneak around the corner and avoid the, the whole monitoring thing is a bit flawed. And, yeah, I think regulation and actually forcing Facebook not to data harvest is, is the way to go. Mm. Well, I've actually just noticed that... Um I think there must have been a recent development that have um, that has happened with all the social media programs as a result of some regulations that might have been implemented in Europe or elsewhere. Because I just realised when I've logged into Facebook and Twitter, they just said that there's a new privacy agreement that I have to agree to, um, which I haven't actually looked at. So, mm. <laughs> of course, no one really reads those, um, and they just quick agree, and then they don't know what they've signed up to. Yeah, well. You- you can't keep using the app unless you agree, so it's kind of mandatory to agree. And it's like, well, if I disagree, well, what option do I have? Yeah. Uh, all right, so who is our next interview? We've got Mike coming up. Yep, Mike Nay Smith. Yep, so and Mike is from... The Public Housing Defence Network. Yep, cool. Well, I might just play a couple of uh, announcements, and we might raise up Mike and have a talk to him about the state of... Defending public housing from 
unscrupulous Labour governments that want to flog it all off. Alrighty, so you are listening to Grand Theft Radio on 3CR, and as mentioned, on the line we have Mike Naismith from the Defence Public, Public Housing Defence Network. Public Housing Defence Network. Welcome, Mike. G'day, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Okay, guess um, the first question um, we get, I want to kind of ask you, Mike, is, you know, what is the kind of kind of current situation, I guess, with the Public Housing Renewal Project? Well, basically what's happening is there are nine estates around the uh, inner city area, um, ranging from North Fifth through to Brunswick West, Ascot Vale, North Melbourne, around the Bright, Hawthorne, Heidelberg West, and these uh, public housing estates, what's generally called walk-ups, are basically sitting on in the inner city ring, what the government sees as prime real estate, and they're going to privatise and sell them off to private developers. They're moving the public housing tenants out right now, some of them have cleared out, and basically they're privatising this public land, public housing land, giving it over to private developers, and then they're going to sell that those uh, housing units to private individual freehold, so it'll be public housing land lost forever. And this campaign that we're involved in at the moment, public housing aims to stop that whole process. And at the moment, the Greens have a amendment going up before the Legislative Council, the Upper House, which um, stops the planning process um, that the government has introduced. Now, basically, the government has taken all planning for this housing, uh, these housing estates away from the local government and it's sequestered it to itself and it's put up um, a motion to the upper house and the Greens are opposing that and last time that happened, the Liberal Party were in a state out in Ashburton, the Wilkins state, um, they joined together and stopped that process and Sorry, Mike. Um, could you just get into a quieter area? Um, because we're just hearing a lot of background noise. Um, yeah, that's the transit. I'll try. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, I guess the kind of next question is sort of what is sort of the public housing defence kind of planning to do um, in to kind of put the pressure to get see if to get this amendment through. Well, you know, we have we have a number of different um, strategies. One one basic strategy is to try and get local councils to come out. Um, uh, as greater opponents. At the moment, there are councils like Moreland, uh, Yarra and Darabin that are opposed to it. But what needs to happen is it needs to become a bigger political campaign so that, in effect, the Labor Party is threatened in those inner city seats over this issue. And so we're also attempting to uh, lobby those councils on that level as well. And uh, previously... Last week there was a rally at the uh, Northcote Estate in Walker Street to highlight the issue. And um, I guess the other other thing is, um, 
I think there was, um, I remember reading in the media release that there is, um, plans to kind of lobby the, the liberal opposition. Um, yeah. so how's that sort of going and what, what do you kind of say, what is your kind of, um, view? What can you kind so of tell me about that? Yeah, so we've been doing that for a week. We're just basically been getting all different groups involved to, uh, send, uh, email, um, to, certain members of the opposition, Matthew Guy, David Davis, for instance, and uh, that's what we're doing at the moment, handing out police um, their email addresses and so on, um, telephone numbers to just try and put pressure on them to uh, come in behind saving these public housing estates, which they've previously done out of that first. They've come in behind the green um, amendments, which... Uh, stop the planning process for that. I mean, the government needs to realise that public housing is something that is just crucial at this present time and always has been in terms of housing working class people, low income people and homeless people. And basically that's what this proposal is about, to stop the process. Now, the ALC government Andrew's government has kept this under the radar quite effectively, but we're maintaining that if it's got the guts, it should take this to the electric and see what people really think about. But at the moment, it's transparency nil. Yeah, I guess the, la- um, the kind of last kind of question I kind of want to ask is. In the event that this legislation going to pass in the parliament, what do you think are kind of the next steps of the campaign? Um, and then well, also... Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, you know, I guess the next step after that will be resistance to, um, like, they'll have to move in the drills, the bulldozers. You know, first of all, they have to smash them all down. Yep. And, and we maintain, basically, that most of them quite sound. They just need to be renewed. They've been run down because there's been no maintenance on them. Yep. But the, the next step, effectively, would have to be to resist it, to, to try and get people to actually mount tickets, mm. to actually oppose the construction. But, I mean, because basically what people would be doing would be opposing private development property from public land, from land that's owned by the state of Victoria, by the people of Victoria, that was set aside to house people, not to be sold off to private developers. And so... In effect, I think the government should really think about where they're going from this because there will be resistance to this process. Have you just sorry, Mark? Have you um, have you written to the uh, to the CFMEU and asked them about their position on this? Because I know back in the seventies when there was a similar thing in Sydney, um, the 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 what was then the, the Builders Labourers Federation put green bans on public housing and said we refuse to participate in knocking down public housing and replacing it with private development. Um, yeah, yeah, well, that was the Battle of Victoria Street, uh, in um, Lord and um, we, we have written to the CFM and the Union, we've written to Trade Hall, we've written um, seeking um, a delegation to um, put, put out a case, and um, we've, we've written to the CFM and the Union, we've specifically asking to support uh, the campaign, um, in particular, this community ticket, uh, to actually um, uh, break the ticket. Mm. Uh, we 
haven't we haven't got a response from either uh, Luke Elitari or Stephen Fletcher. Um, okay, it's pretty poor we form. Have, we have put it on uh, paper and they've put it there and yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm actually a rank and file CFMEU member, so I might see if I can push that issue a bit too at a, at a branch meeting. That'd be great. Yeah. So I mean, we've given the system notice about the and what. Yeah, sweet. And um, has the Public Housing Defence Network have, have you got like alternative plans or proposals to about renewal and what that might look like? I mean, obviously you're not. You don't have the resources to come up with detailed plans for public housing renewal, but have you just kind of got a position about, you know, here's how we how we should be going instead of selling all this off? Well, yeah, basically the position is renewal to extend and renew it. Now, if you take the after sale estate, for instance, um, that was actually built with um, ALP government money, like to change change. Yeah, Kane Senior, John Kane Senior in the 1948, and cheaply, uh, they provided money. To, that was a race course there. And uh, that estate was um, uh, taken over by the government for public housing with um, from pressure from residents and union movement at the time. Now, it was designed according to Guardian principles, and 36% of it was laid out so that there would be open space and the buildings were placed to get afternoon um, sun and had large windows to the time. So And also they actually um, looked at the sort of trees that would be uh, suitable to that estate in summer and winter. Hmm. And it was laid out according to what the Garden City principles. Now, if you walk around that estate, it's that lovely red... Think of bricks, and um, the thing about it is there's not a crack on the outside of any of those buildings. Hmm. The deterioration is internal because there's been no maintenance. Now, when the housing commission was set up, basically the rent was meant to go, all the rent was meant to go to maintenance. Hmm. But the government has put it into general revenue. It does not specifically go into maintenance. The government puts it into general revenue, and I know that. Because I know so many works hmm. in the government bureaucracy, in the housing department. Nothing set aside specifically for maintenance. Maintenance is that block, and you can't run public housing estate, any housing estate in that kind of basis. There's got to be, even people in body corporate and private development have to give a certain amount each month, put into a special account for maintenance when something happens. Hmm. Now, I've done off on some of these estates. Out at Grand Patron since there was a young lass there, and she had one power plant operating in her in her unit, and it had been like that for three years. Oh, that's so disgraceful. That's really unsafe too, because then you've got to piggyback all your leads to run all your stuff off that one PowerPoint. Exactly. Hmm. So this just gives you an indication of what the government's attitude has been towards these people and is towards them. Hmm. Yeah, basically slum landlords, as you say, private yeah. private operators aren't allowed to treat their their tenants like that. Mm. All right, and uh, so we should probably wrap it up. We've got to get to the uh, activist calendar. Uh, how can people get involved and support the public housing defence network? And you know, back is in uh, on this important campaign. Yeah, 
Well, what we have is a Facebook, Public Housing Defence Network Facebook, and uh, they can just um, log on to that, and basically they'll pick up information, and if they want to get involved, they can send a message through that. We meet every second Monday at the neighbourhood house up there in um, North Carp, uh, near the old the old railway station in it. It's now a neighbourhood house, but... Uh, yeah, basically, just get on to the um, Facebook and uh, away you go. You'll be able to get involved. I, because that wasn't that clear, um, I'll just say that it was, um, you can reach the Public Housing Defence Network on their page by searching up Public Housing Defence Network on Facebook, um, and that we, we also have regular organising meetings on Monday nights at North Carlton Railway House um, at 6.30pm. Wicked. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks each for talking to us this morning, Mike, and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Uh, Mike Naismith there from the Public Housing Defence Network, and, uh, yeah, obviously an important campaign. It's it's already bad with the, the shortage of the underinvestment in public housing over the last probably about 40 years. But, yeah, the idea that the Labor government would sell off these estates and uh, permanently lose that public land for public housing is just disgusting. Okay, um, so we'll just pay a quick announcement and then we'll move straight into the activist calendar. Yes, make sure you get your tickets to Grand Theft Comedy Fest. I remember I had to jump in last year because Red Quantock was unwell. And uh, I went to introduce Gabe Hogan. (laughs) And she goes, it's Gabe Hogan, not... Gay Bogan. <laughs> Good times. Okay, so um, just wanted to give. Um, I just got reading an SMS right now because there's actually a number of workers' rallies happening today. Um, so there's actually something happening at 8:30 a.m., like 30 minutes from now, at um, the Oceana Gold shareholders meeting um, at 357 Collins Street, and that's in support of MUA workers. Um, there'll be a 10 a.m. rally in support of MUA workers at ICTSL, um, which is at 530 um, Collins Street in Melbourne. Um, and then there's a rally um, organised by the NUW and um, the United Voice um, at 11 a.m. to a rally to demand a living wage um, at 11 a.m. outside the Fair Work Commission, which is at 11 Expedition Street in Melbourne. Um, so, yeah, that's a, just a taste of what's going to be happening um, tonight in, uh, or today in Melbourne. All right, so, so um, some of the things that are um, happening is um, tomorrow there'll be the Big Red Book Fair um, happening all day from, I think, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the um, New International Bookshop, which is at um, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. Um, there'll be the Long Walk um, in Federation Square, hosted by Michael Long. Um, and on Sunday, June the 30th, um, it will be Mambo Day, celebrating the 26th anniversary of Mambo Day at 12 noon at the Federation Square in the city. And then there will be Mambo Day 2, an afternoon of music and conversation from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Unitarian Peace Memorial Church, um, uh, 110 Gray Street in East Melbourne. Um, on Thursday, June the 7th, um, there'll be a bottom dollar welfare quarantine in remote Australia, which is basically um, going to be a public forum about um, the whole kind of welfare quarantine quarantine scheme. Um, and they'll be happening at the Wheeler Centre on Thursday night, 6.15 to 7.15pm. 
On Saturday, June the 9th, there'll be a rally our Quds, a day for Palestine, at 1.30pm in the State Library. Um, on Saturday, June the 16th, there'll be the Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, um, which you've probably just heard about at the previous announcement. So that's happening at 16th of June at the Brunswick Town Hall, 6.30pm for an 8pm start. Um, there'll be also on the same night will be a pill testing fundraiser at 8pm at the Gasometer Hotel, 484 Smith Street in Collingwood. That's being organised by grassroots gatherings and being supported by Victorian socialists. On Sunday, um, June the 24th, there'll be a rally in March, Unite to Stop the Right, at 11am at the Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets in Carlton South. And on Saturday, July 7th to July... July 8th, there'll be a conference for the Refugee Action Network, um, which is happening at the ANMF building, 535 Elizabeth Street in the city. And then on Saturday, July the 7th, um, from Wednesday, July the 11th, there'll be the Student Sustainability Conference, which, since I'm sort of involved in the organising committee or have all the information, it's actually going to be at the La Trobe University and Bondura. Um, so, yeah, keep it eye out. Search Student Sustainability on Facebook, and you should be able to find a Facebook event, and there's even a website as well. Yeah, sweet. And, of course, starting next week and going for two weeks is the 3 Cigar Radiothon, and we need to mate, we need to raise a quarter of a million clams to keep this sweet radio station kicking along. So, uh, yeah, get amongst it. Uh, starting next week, you should ring up and make a pledge. Uh, it's 94198377. You can ring up now if you want. I'm sure someone's going to pick up the phone. Uh, yeah, we, we really need to keep this radio station going. It's not free. Uh, we've got bills. We've got stuff that we've got to do. We've got, you know, staff. There's 300, over 300 volunteers here at 3CR, but there's also some committed staff members who hold this thing all together. So we've got to, we've got to keep this thing going. So, Get ready to get your wallets open, people, because 3CR is here to stay. All right, what's uh, what's happening? I want to just play another quick, um, maybe just a quick song, and then we'll go to our next interview. Radio. Uh, I, I was going to play Balloon Man, but seriously, that's been in our dinner set for ages. We play the same song all the time. Uh, I'm going to look up something live on air. All right, I'm scrolling down. I'm going to go to the music women category because basically, let's face it, a bit of a sausage fest this morning. Um, not enough women's voices on Green Left Radio. Uh, all right, what have we got here? I'm going to play a song by Do the Robot called Never Knew. Let's, let's find out what that is. Alrighty, so that was Never Knew by Do The Robot. Uh, you are listening to 3CR Community Radio, and on the line we have got Tony Iltis, who has recently travelled to India, and yeah, can tell us a bit about the political situation uh, Yeah, in, in India. Welcome, Tony. Hi. Um, hi, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. So, um, Tony, what can you tell... You made a... Re, um, just in the, several months ago, or a few months ago, you made a trip to um, India um, representing to kind of, um, the Socialist Alliance um, for uh, the Communist Party of India, Marxist, Lib- 
Marxist-Leninist Liberation um, Congress um, that happened, I think, over a week's period, and you also got an opportunity to do a lot of sightseeing, though not normal sightseeing, where you got a chance to kind of spend a lot of time with the the comrades over there, and you know. So, what can you give us a bit of a um, a bit of a kind of summary of kind of some of your experiences that you had, and kind of what kind kind of um, po- what did you kind of learn politically from it? Yeah, well, it was actually quite a quick trip. Like, we went for the conference of the CPIML Liberation and had a few days afterwards. What we did do afterwards was we went to JNU, which is the main university there, and and that's the site of lots of struggles. Um, It's probably a good good place to start with politics in India at the moment because this... um, like the situation in India at the moment is very full on with the government of Modi, like the BJP and the sort of organisations associated with it. Uh, well, the CPIML will basically analyse them as fascists and there's real attacks going on on the sort of institutions of liberal um, democracy which India has had since independence. And JNU is very much a flashpoint. Like JNU is an interesting university. It's always had a quota system where, you know, on the basis of a whole lot of different things from economic background to gender, caste, um, ethnic minorities or whether people come from poor regions, there's a big affirmative action quota thing. And... So, like, it, a lot of the students at JNU are people who are the first person ever in their family to go to university. There was a big move at the moment to make universities more neoliberal, and there's also an ideological move by the government to basically you know, make JNU students um, a, a bit more silent. So, that was, yeah, cause quite a lot going on there and when we visited like there are a whole lot of um, faculties which are under lockdown which is where literally students have put a padlock across the door and are sitting barricading the place. Um, the most notable one of those was the life sciences where they were also protesting against um, this well basically this sleazy lecturer who's been sexually harassing students for years and using it as a way of, you know, ru- ruining people's careers if they don't give in to it, and the students have basically had enough. And so there's a big protest outside the office where he is, and they've also, you know, like, they've got amazing, you know, banners and signs and things, and a large number of students there. They've also, they've also got a petition signed by, like, 160 leading Indian scientists to get rid of this guy. But he's, like, close to the university. Um, Vice Chancellor, who's a political appointment from Modi. So um, when I left, it was very much at a standoff with the government saying he wasn't going anywhere, but the students determined that he would go. So I mean, I, yeah, I mean, this campus is like a hive of political activity, and you know, indicative of what's happening around the country. So one of the, um, one of the things I'm interested in hearing about is um, you know is specifically the um, what you kind of learned about the character of the Modi government and you know the kind of character of kind of fascism in India. 
Yeah, it's, 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 in, it's interesting because, I mean, the, I mean, since independence, all governments in India have, you know, you know, been willing to use repression of the police there, you know, very corrupt courts can be totally, you know, biased along with, like, um, caste and economic things. But I mean, where the government's different is, it's a real push to, yeah, basically, basically towards a sort of, you know, more totalitarian, intolerant society. The form of, uh, I like the ideology of religious fundamentalists, so it's very much Hindu supremacist with violence against Muslims, violence against Dalits, who are like the, um, you know, people at the bottom of the caste system, um, violence against national minorities. Where, I mean, we have a CPI Mills analysis of making it fa- saying it's fascist rather than just sort of right-wing repressive intolerant regime is based on the fact that it is based on a mass movement, which is, I mean, very disturbing. But, I mean, you know, when they're lynching of people, you know, for, you know, reasons like interreligious romances or whatever, like it's not... Like it's carried out by supporters of the government, but not by like government death squads or the police. But they're actually mobs. There's a real, you know, mass movement that the BJP government is based on. So, you know, counter mobilisations are needed. Like, so uh, I mean, the CML analysis is needed to defend the institutions of liberal democracy, but at the same time, they're quite aware that those institutions aren't going to actually themselves stand up to fascism, so the actual resistance to this movement is going to be on the street more than in the ballot box. Hmm. And so, can, what else can you kind of tell me about some of the um, other kind of general, um, kind of some, what what is the kind of the feeling you kind of get for some of the general political some of the political situation in India, like in terms of like questions around, say, um, workers' rights, and I'm also interested in sort of the current status of, um, you know, agriculture and, you know, peasant kind of struggles around farms and um, also the kind of struggles against, I mean, we know, it would be actually interesting to hear about kind of what is the sort of dynamics of the of the Adani, especially in relation to Australia. Yeah, funny, I mean, Adani is a huge, you know, like, I mean, he's a very good friend, actually, of, of Modi, um, the, the guy who owns Adani, and it's, I mean, that we, um, issue happening in Queensland is sort of replicated in a number of places all over India, like, I mean, this company's got a horrible record when it comes to, you know, both local communities and the environment, and it's also very much part of the sort of crony capitalist thing at the top. I mean, one of the things is, which is quite shocking, because everyone hears a lot of the media about India's economic miracle and all that, which is, you know, very overstated, but in the last period, it's been, this, like, India's got one of the largest numbers of new billionaires in the world. So there are some people getting very rich, but at the same time, the majority, like, social indicators on things like it, maternal mortality and infant mortality and that has actually gone down so for a majority of people you know economically and in other ways things have gone backwards um, 
the majority of the population is still rural, and we have a big farmer struggle. Um, like just before we arrived there, there was this huge march which had sort of gone a long distance across the north of India. Like in the 90, like where the conference I, I went to was held in Punjab, which in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was the centre of what they called the Green Revolution, which was this big agricultural thing, you know, based on, you know, sort of like high-tech, high, you know, input of, you know, fertilizers and chemicals and that sort of stuff, which, you know, was held the big thing by development experts because um, crops went up. Since then, like, the soils have all become depleted and now yields have folded and so there's an epidemic of suicide amongst farmers. There's also an epidemic of cancer because these methods are very, you know, chemical-intensive. So... Like, I mean, all the sort of, you know, benefits which might have come from the Green Revolution, you know, 30, 40 years ago, now the price is being paid, and it's quite a terrible price. So, you know, there's big um, mobilizations happening amongst agricultural workers and peasants. Hmm. Yeah. Zane, do you have any kind of questions you want to ask? Uh, I'm not sure if you're able to... to um comment any further i mean what you're just talking about is um pretty much what i would have asked about it's there, there was a speaker uh, from maharashtra province who came out and and did this adani speaking to her and yeah just some of the images that i saw of the protests by um rural workers and peasants against um new coal mine and coal-fired power station proposals in india were like astonishing, like these are really big protests. Um. Yeah, and I mean it's a classic thing there of you know development, which isn't in the interests of most people. So you know even things which might sound good, like a very fast train project, is actually just going to make people landless and you know not be a form of transport that most people there use it and. Yeah, things like mining and all that is devastating. And I mean, certainly when we were talking about the campaign against the Dani here, people there were very familiar with that company. It was one of the most powerful companies in India. And yeah, um, if anyone's, you know, wondering about whether their um, commitments, when we're talking about their mining Queensland to, um, you know, make commitments to be environmentally responsible. I mean, if anyone's wondering about the truth, most of those So we'll, we'll probably wrap it up. Where can people read more about Indian politics and, and just the latest state of play if they're uh, interested in this, uh, yeah, in, in learning more about Indian left politics and what's happening? Um, uh, well, the cpiml.org is the website of the CPIML Liberation, and that would probably be a good place to start. I mean, Green Left Weekly would cover it sporadically, and also in links. Um, there'd be some stuff. Um, but if you Google CPI Mail Liberation, um, or go to cpimail.org, the, you know, the website of the party there. I mean, it's a pretty huge party to give some indication of the conference I went to. There was a delegate ratio of one delegate for every 500 members from each branch or I think 
communism is very normal there. Hmm. Yeah, um, sweet. All right. Well, um, yeah, if, uh, yeah, thanks for speaking to us. Um, did, was there anything else that we've missed? Um, not that I can think of. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on uh, Green Left. I'll see if I can post out a, um, a link to one of those articles on the, the Green Left Radio Facebook page as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thanks. All right, sweet. Uh, yeah, Tony Altus there. Uh, Green Left Weekly International sort of um, as, as part of a, um, a, a delegation to the... Communist Party of India, uh, Marxist-Leninist Liberation um, um, Party um, Conference. All right, we'll, uh, we're just going to play another announcement, and then we'll have a little bit more news, and then stick around because, uh, as with every week, Beyond Zero Emissions are going to come in. All righty, getting close to wrapping up Green Left Radio for the week. Yeah, I just want to make a quick uh, announce, sort of just a quick news story. Um, Probably people might have heard in the news that um, the pop star Shakira has um, cancelled her performance in Israel um, in support of the boycott divestment campaign, um, which was um, which is very positive development, and it kind of goes to show, you know, if if someone like Shakira, who's now very mainstream. Uh, very big, you know, pop star can cancel um, and support the um, boycott divestment campaign. Why is it that these kind of indie alternative musicians like Radiohead and Nick Cave can't do so? Mm. I mean, I know they're big, mainstream, but they have the pretensions of being, you know, therefore they intellectually engage, intellectually engaging music. You know, you think they would be, they would be able to get this, mm. um, but yeah. It kind of raises that kind of question, and um, yeah, I guess it makes you question your assumptions too about um, pop artists and their their politics. Like, I never used to get into Pink, but um, you know, I know a lot of um, queer and feminist activists who are really into Pink, and um, I've worked as a cheesy wedding DJ for a while, and yeah, I've, I've, I don't know, I guess I've come to appreciate Pink's politics a bit more over the years. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, just the last story I wanted to give. And um, yeah, thank you to all the listeners um, who tuned into our program um, this week um, and tune in for Beyond Zero Emissions. And um, look forward to next week's program next Friday at seven a.m. Yeah, word. All right. See you then. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Three pieces of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.